0: We have what looks like droidicas, but they are like the dads and the the parents of droidicas. So when they come in, (laughs) yeah, they're daddy (laughs) cuz.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Plot Devices, episode 21, We're Old Enough to Drink. Uh, my name is Brandon King. I am one of your hosts for today, alongside my, I believe, also Legal to Drink co-host, Noah Guzman. Uh, Noah, how are you doing on this Fine Academy Awards weekend?
0: Feeling amazing, Brandon. We are at episode 21. As you said, we are old enough to legally consume alcohol and all the content we love. It's um the party
1: responsibly.
0: I'm Brandon, I'm 23. I have been drinking since I was... Edit that part out. Um, (laughs) We are talking Oscar nominations right out the gate. And it's a conversation, I think, we're going to have some high points here. We're going to have some lows because I just read through that list uh, just to review right before I started record. And there are some surprising nominations on this list. The big story of the week. It's finally here at the Oscar nominations for the
1: 94th Academy Awards. They were officially announced Uh, As as we're recording this this past week, if if you're listening to this, it's probably about, you know, a week or so prior. Uh, We got them on a live stream. Tracy Ellis Ross and uh, Leslie Jordan hosted. Uh, Your nominees for Best Picture overall. Ten nominations. The first year that we had a mandatory ten nomination limit are Belfast, Coda, Don't Look Up, Drive My Car, Dune, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, Nightmare Alley, The Power of the Dog, and West Side Story. Uh, The big story of the night is the Power of the Dog uh, took the biggest cut of the awards, 12 nominations overall, including Best Picture, uh, Best Actor for Benedict Cumberbatch, and Best Director for Jane Campion, which makes her the first director to be nominated, uh, the first female director, I should say, to be nominated for Best Director twice. So a huge achievement. Uh, many of the achievements, uh, many records were placed uh, for the series award ceremony. Other big nominees, uh, you have Dune, 10 nominations, also for picture, also for screenplay, for visual effects, a bunch of other things. West Side Story and Belfast came in tying third with seven nominations each. Uh, both of them, again, Best Picture, uh, West Side Story, stumped for uh, screenplay, but we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but Ariana DeBose, nominated for Supporting Actress. Uh, Jenny Kaminsky nominated for a Cinematography. As for Belfast, snubbed for Cinematography. However, uh, I did get in there for Kieran Hines, for Best Supporting Actor. You have it, I believe, for editing. I will double-check that as we get into our conversation, but a lot of the uh, for those films. The 94th Academy Awards are set to be given out and televised on ABC on March 27th, although COVID concerns make that a publication. We'll get into that in a minute. Uh, voting for the awards is close on the 25th, Noah, I want to hop into you uh, in a, with a bunch of things for this, because again, I have, I have way too many thoughts on this, and I'm sure you do as well. What stood out to you as far as overall nominations go? And uh, let's just hop into it. What stood out? What didn't?
0: So when I was looking over these nominations, I think uh, the category where I felt the most uh, I guess surprised by because there are some great additions to this list that I didn't see coming was in the visual effects category. Hey, two video game films. No, no time to die. That's a James Bond movie. Okay. That is a video game movie. I suppose. Yeah. What came first? The books? Yeah. The books definitely came out first. Yeah. We all knew that. Um, (laughs) what was the,
1: (laughs) no, 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 no. because our first episode is subtitled. We don't know Bond. So
0: this is normal. Yeah, this is this is continuity, okay, Brandon. What is uh, what's that first surprise that you want to mention? I was
1: expecting a lot
0: and nothing,
1: and I uh, actually I put out a um a whole breakdown of the uh, biggest snub, surprise, and satisfaction on Odyssey. Go ahead and read that if uh, you're interested. I'm happy with a lot of these, uh, and I was specifically jumping up and down with two things. One, you know me, animation nerd of the group. We reviewed this a couple shows ago. Mitchell's versus the Machines got in for animated feature. I was so ecstatic. And just the fact that it got in alongside the whole Disney dynasty of, you know, Luca and Raya and uh, Encanto, obviously. Uh, And good to see Flea in there. Uh, I know this wasn't in my initial pitch, but Flea, the first movie to be nominated for uh, international film, documentary, and animated feature in the same year. Huge achievement. I have not seen it yet, but I intend to see it this week and I've heard fantastic things. The other thing, though, Kristen Stewart, best lead actress. I want to slap every awards pundit I follow this season who is telling me, ah, she got Dubbed out of the Baptist and she didn't get this and this, and you know, just give up on Kristen Stewart. And she popped up, and I absolutely, I'm not ashamed to admit it, I screamed. I was so happy to see her. And apparently, that's been a reaction online. Like a lot of people have been posting compilations of their reaction to Kristen Stewart's nomination. And I love that. I think that's so pure. Uh, and it goes to show why the, why the Oscars, I think, matter more than we give them credit for. But those were the two that really stood out to me, which is Mitchell's for animated and uh, Kristen Stewart getting, I think, a well deserved actress nomination.
0: And when you're reading over this nomination list, there are so many that you feel, at least if you're involved in the community, like neck and neck with each other. Um, I felt that myself when I was looking over categories of cinematography. You know, I, in this last week, I got around to watching Nightmare Alley that is from Guillermo del Toro. That's available now on Hulu for any of you listening to this who haven't gotten a chance to watch that. And that was up against, in the category of cinematography, Dune and West Side Story. Uh, and those are the three that I think I'm like, Damn, it'll, that is a hard, that's a hard choice to narrow down because even with those three, it'd be hard for me to get down to two. Um, after watching, uh, Del Toro's movie, I just, I could see a lot of, um, his vision in it and it, and I'm not surprised to see that he's involved on this list. Uh, another category with the same kind of pickle is best song. You have, uh, the James Bond song, No Time to Die from No Time to Die, performed by Billie Eilish. And then we have Lin Manuel Miranda's, uh, Encanto, it is the song, I believe it's pronounced Dos Oruguitas, uh, that's performed by, that's performed by Sebastian Yatra and it's such a touching song and it plays at such, it plays at such an emotional moment during the movie that it just, um, it, it just, it like heightens, um, what you value from it. At least that's how I feel. So that's another category where I feel like they are just, you know, neck and neck with each other. There are some nominations on this list. I will say, you know, I'm not, I'm not, always, I'm not often pulling that negative card, but uh, I do have to say that some of these nominations look like the multiple choice questions that you get in tests that are like, you know, choose the one that doesn't belong. And I think there's a standout in the best picture category that does not belong. Um, to be up there as best picture, I just, I'm, I'm sorry, I couldn't see it and of course i'm speaking on don't look up
1: i am with you and you know if any of you out there listen to our review you know that we were not fans of it and we continue to not be fans of it however i want to put in a silver lining which is that I heard so many people calling Don't Look Up, like, the big sweep of the Academy. Like, it was going to be the big sweeping message movie that Adam McKay made, you know, for all the celebrities and for all the masses to be like, yay, this is a good thing. And it didn't sweep. And I was so happy. Like, no Leo in there. No Adam McKay for director. No, uh, it should have gotten there for song, actually. I actually like the the Bonnie Bear Ariana Grande song in there. But um, it didn't sweep. And I was so happy to see it. So, like, if it has to be in there for picture, I hate that it's in there. But it could have been worse.
0: Excellent point, Brandon. Now, it's so funny because, you know, don't look up at least is on here and we're mentioning it, but there's a movie that's on here also, I think just the once, and we didn't even mention it. How hilarious is an insulting word. So I won't say hilarious, but how hilarious, hilarious. how hilarious is it that house of Gucci is is on there? Um, I believe house of Gucci is nominated for best hair and makeup. Um, are we, t- are we talking the Jared Leto makeup? Are we, are we did we watch the same movie?
1: Oh, but we're also talking about like, you know, Adam Driver's makeup in there and like Lady Gaga's hairstyling and everything's so like, th- there's more to that. And also I should mention, uh, Frederico Spiros had a great interview with, I believe it was Variety, where he talked about how Ridley Scott was basically a jerk to him on set. And now he has the only nomination in that category, <laughs> which will never not be funny to me. <laughs>
0: I I swear, man, you read these lists and like um, you know, you take it for what it is, but some of these make you laugh. Um, other high points for me, I want to get back to the positive, is seeing Tick Tick Boom nominated. And that makes me smile. Of course, we just recorded an episode with our former host, uh Samantha Corvaya involved in a top 10 of this last year, uh top 10 of 2021. And Tick Tick Boom was at the top of that list for me. So seeing Andrew Garfield be nominated, um, seeing Oh my gosh. It's adapted screenplay? Oh, no, it didn't get oh, screenplay. It, it, only,
1: it only got in for actor and editing. And, you know, to be honest, I would swap it out for uh, Don't Look Up for Picture. i totally do that. I'm honestly surprised that with the amount of just sheer acclaim and love that Tick, Tick, Boom got. Yes, Andrew Garfield got in there, as he should, and I'm rooting for him. Uh, it got in there for editing, which is great. But I really thought it was going to get in there... Definitely for picture, just with the acclaim behind it, like maybe even for uh, maybe even for screenplay. Although speaking of screenplay, I should bring it back around to um, uh, to uh, screenplay for a moment. I was shocked, absolutely befuddled that Worst Person in the World got original screenplay over Aaron Sorkin. Like, the Academy loves Aaron Sorkin for being the Ricardos, and with the amount of love that that film has been getting just for Sorkin alone, I figured he was a lock for that. And then when Worst Person in the Wall popped up, I was like, oh my God. Like, I kind of continued on where that happened, Drive My Car got a bunch of nominations, Flea did, and I was like, oh my God, the Academy is loving foreign cinema. Like, this is a good thing.
0: I mean, when we talk about uh, this past year, some of us um, didn't have as much accessibility or opportunity to go to theaters, and we were um, watching a lot of streaming movies. And the, you know, we've covered stories in the past of uh, providing like subtitling or open captioning in AMC theaters. And so, the more and more we open ourselves to these, um, to these different films uh outside of hollywood it just it it clearly there's quality in those films and i'm happy that they're showing up because it i mean it was it wasn't long ago when we heard um we heard uh jane fonda say those words you know parasite for best picture and we all lost our stuff um over bong joon ho and so i just i hope that isn't the um outlier you know i hope that we we start to see a norm of like you know i want us to expect these every year and i think that we're getting close to that
1: it is, and it goes to the idea of, you know, bah, the Oscars don't matter. No, they kind of do, because they put movies like this. Like, you know how many people, and I know this, because apparently Drive My Car made a million dollars in limited release last week, specifically because of Oscar-related expansions. It's so, like, the Oscars definitely matter, at least for those kinds of, maybe not for, you know, Dune or Power of the Dog, but, like, they matter to a degree for a lot of films that wouldn't. Uh, although I do want to, uh, speaking of Drive My Car, I want to pop into adaptive Screenplay real quick, because I know that you are the West Side Story aficionado, Tony Kushner did not get a nomination for screenplay. Would you have slid any of those out for West Side Story?
0: No disrespect to the best adapted screenplay nominations. Um, I, as as much as I did love West Side Story, um, I'm happy to see Ariana DeBose up there for best supporting actress. Uh, her role as Anita is something to write home about, and maybe one of you will. Um, but looking at the adapted screenplays, I just the only ones I'm familiar with here are The Power of the Dog. The Lost Daughter and Dune, so I wouldn't want to knock out Coda or drive my car because uh, I didn't get around to the watching those. You know, we have a while before those winners are announced, um, so I hope I can fit it in my schedule. But uh, honestly, Dune, I, I was a big fan of The Lost Daughter. We raved about it here on our directorial debut segment just a couple episodes ago. <sighs> And The Power of the Dog, I look at it kind of with a frown, but I know the I know the credit that you and um, Sam offer up to it. So it'd be a cop out to say, you know, swap out The Power of the Dog for West Side Story. But hey, that'll make this a little more colorful.
1: Frankly, I would have, what I would have frankly done, I would have put, uh, whatchamacallit, no disrespect to Spielberg at all. But I think the nuance of what Kushner and Spielberg, to an extent, bring to the actual script of West Side Story, between the dialogue choices between... The sort of pacing of it, but uh, as compared to the original, I would have swapped out uh, Power of the Dog for Screenplay because it's already getting, you know, awards commendum, you know, so to speak. I do want to bring it back to supporting actress. Uh, Were you expecting Jessie Buckley at all?
0: I didn't feel that her, while her role was, you know, portrayed realistically and you know i was behind her uh she actually just got involved in a trailer for a new a24 movie called men that i can't wait to see but i didn't feel her role was as as available or as like yeah i would say as available on screen enough for me to include her in this category i think that um there might have been some other um you know I, i can't give you a supporting actress right now but that was a that was a surprise you know
1: yeah, personally, I would have thrown in either Ruth McGough for passing or Anne Dowd for Mass uh, or hell, even Danielle Melchior for Suicide Squad for supporting actress. Um, but at the same time, like, I wasn't expecting it. And I was so happy to see her name because we all love Jessie Buckley. Like, she's immensely talented And just to see her name in there. Like, to start the live stream, that was that thing
0: of, oh, they're not playing by our rules. Can you imagine if the Suicide Squad's Rat Catcher made it in here? That would be... In my heart, she is in there. <laughs> you're right you're right we'll have to have our um our own fantasy oscars league okay
1: um actually um although i do want to bring up for visual effects no suicide squad
0: for visual effects i know what an insult to operation starfish
1: like james gunn did not put a several stories tall starfish on screen for us to not put it in visual effects
0: for real i mean uh, maybe honestly maybe these people looked at it um and they thought okay we're doing comic book movies we've got to do no way home. Okay. There, that, that checks the box. All right, moving on. And they didn't even think twice about it. They're like this biggest movie of the year freaking of, of many years because it's break. It broke box office records. I think that approached um, uh, for some reason I was going to talk Titanic, but I don't know if it came close to that. What was that? Do you remember what the high point was for that movie that or, it sales? No way home.
1: Oh, in terms of box office. Yeah. It's over a billion. I know that.
0: Um well, I think the short comment here is just that um, for that movie to have such a wide impact, it had to at least be mentioned. I think there was a TV show host that made some headlines because he said, no way home should be considered for best picture. I think that was um, Jimmy Kimmel. Well, no, I was going to bring up number one,
1: 1.7 billion. That was close. Number two, uh, I was going to bring up the Spider-Man thing because number one, Jimmy Kimmel called it out on, uh, on his show, which is, a weird comment, because don't look up what's Netflix's highest rated or what are their highest rated movies of 2021? Whatever populist movies don't exist in the Oscars. Eh? And then Kevin Smith, of course, you know, beloved comic book icon comes out and is like, I really think they should have effing put in Spider-Man into Best Picture. So I wanted to
0: impose that to you, but you already beat me to it. So please continue your point. <laughs> right. So if if it does take home, I, I think with so much that it's completed. I mean, come on, it's, it's time that we start taking movies. um, Even if they come from the comic book lane, even if they come from um, the foreign markets, even if they come from my beloved horror um, avenues, like we have to start seeing more, um, more diversity in some of these pictures. Uh, And I can't say start seeing because we are, we're starting to see them now. And so um, if no way home does take home an award, What am I saying? As if it's multiple, as if it's in multiple categories. I want No Way Home to take home that visual effects award. I think that that would be amazing for uh, Marvel fans, for you know, comic book fans. Uh, That'll be a great. That'll be great.
1: And as far as Spider Man No Way Home goes, would you peg it for visual effects? With you know the dominance that Dune has, with No Time to Die, that we were both big fans of visually. Like, do you think Spider Man has that shot in terms of sheer
0: popularity? Ooh, is that just because that's the you know that's the uh, the category that I saw it in, and it wasn't like in. I don't know. That's a, that's a tough question, Brandon, because uh, no time to die. I think I gave it close. I gave it close to a 10. I might've given that a nine and that was, that was because of how um, how great that movie looked on screen Um, free guy. I think that's a fun nomination, but I don't think that it beats out the other two Um, Dune. I see, uh, you know, trailblaze, not trailblazing, but um, really leading the chart on, on a couple other categories, but not necessarily visual effects. I mean, yeah, I, I do want to see it take home this. I think that this is where it's at. Um, visual effects is what you have to give it because there's no award for, you know, societal uh, impact quaking. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's no word for... Uh, I was slowly putting together a moonfall plug in in that next comment, but I could not... We're not, not there yet. yet. We're not there yet. I know. Um, out of, you know, breaking fourth wall. I don't have much. I don't have much else if you... I, I don't know if you do.
1: I do want to point out just a couple more things before we get into our Best Picture prediction. Uh, we mentioned Jane Campion being the first woman to be nominated for more than one directing nomination. Uh, we also have Koda. Uh, Troy Katsura got in for Best Supporting Actor. He is the first uh, male supporting actor nominee to be recognized as a uh, deaf, hard-appearing performer. He's also an Arizona native. We record this from Arizona, and that was a huge deal out here, so that was uh, really great uh, supporting news. Ryosuke Hamaguchi for uh, Drive My Car, the first uh, Japanese picture to be nominated for Best Picture, and the third director uh, from Japan to be nominated for uh, Best Director. You also had... Uh, there was another one I had here. Obviously, uh, Flea, as I already mentioned, first to be nominated for animated feature, uh, documentary, and international feature in the same year. For both uh, Ariana DeBose and Kristen Stewart, the first time, at least in recent memory, that two openly LGBTQ plus actors were nominated in the acting categories. And uh, speaking of the acting categories, this is also the first time, at least again in recent memory, at least as far as I could tell, Two married couples nominated for acting awards. You had Penelope Kruth and uh, Javier Bardem for uh, Parallel Mothers and Being the Ricardos. And then you also had Kirsten Dunst and uh, Jesse Plemons, both for Power of the Dog. Uh, did any of those stand out to you at
0: all? I'm happy you bring those up because otherwise, you know, they kind of get swept under the rug because we are, we are caring too much about, oh, who takes home, you know, the biggest award of the night? Like, these are all amazing awards. And um, it's important, yes, to pay attention to some of those Um, those smaller details of these nominations.
1: But so that being said, biggest question, who takes home best picture, who should win, who will win? Noah, do you have an initial, and I'm sure we'll get into this more as we get close to the Oscars, but right now, who do you see as the front runner and who would you like to see in your heart?
0: I think doom should win best picture. I think um, we started freaking out about it early enough in the past year, maybe year and a half when that first cast announcement was made. Um, I wanted to see, for sure timothy uh chalamet pick up a role that was more um you know i hadn't yes um i hadn't seen him in a sci-fi flick before so uh approaching this huge movie and i only knew it was huge because of how big that sandworm was in the in one of the early trailers um but that was just that was just like a little a little peek behind the curtain of what this movie really was hoping to achieve, um, with its visual effects, with its cinematography. Um, that's why it's so hard to distinguish, you know, a winner between that and like West Side Story. When we talk West Side Story, I'm like, Hey, if you want to know good cinematography, go watch West Side Story. Well, now I'm eating those words because now I'm, I'm really torn and, uh, I think that if we had to choose a winner for best picture and we do, or thankfully not us, but it's other people um, Dune would make me really happy. Uh, you know, when that's only part one, so it's only half of what we're going to receive hopefully in the future. And I hope that it continues to hit those marks. I really want it to be, um, you know, up there with those famous, famous franchises of um, sci-fi epics. And that's what I think it achieves. So Dune's my choice.
1: Dune has a legitimate shot. And the fact that if it did, it would put a huge bullet in the hole. Again, people like Kevin Smith and Jimmy Kimmel to be like, ah, there's no popular film in Dodge. Are you kidding? Like one of the biggest blockbusters the last at least few years, if not last year, gets winning for best picture. Are you kidding? For me, though, this is really tough. I did really like Drive My Car. I did really like Coda. In my heart, I'm with you. I think as far as story, visuals, aesthetic, distinctive feel to it,
0: Brandon and the sound I didn't mention and the sound sounds. yes
1: which it did get nominated for which thank god beyond all that I think Dune as a complete package has the populist appeal to it has the momentum in the award season and I think between us I think has the most genuine appeal to the both of us um although th- nothing to be said of like most of these like and don't look up has a shot but like I don't think it's gonna have as big of a shot as we think so again we're putting it on the universe now Dune should and will win best picture and if we're right in a month good for us And with all the Oscar stuff out of the way, new releases. We've got a couple of them, specifically one we've been teasing for a long time. The Moon Has Fallen to Earth. Roland Emmerich has done it. The Glory of Moonfall is here. Noah, we both saw it. Please toss it over to our listeners and tell us, does the moon fall to Earth? What has Roland Emmerich done?
0: It's a bird, it's a plane, it's a megastructure, it's a big floating rock that orbits Earth. Um, We are seeing the moon hurtling towards Earth. Uh, Let me give you a short description of what this movie is about, okay? We got, yes, the disaster movie director, Roland Emmerich. Um, Of course, there are other movies in his catalog as well. Uh, But he is the writer and director of Moonfall. Um, He takes the same credits for uh, some famously known movies like Independence Day, um, The Day After Tomorrow, 10,000 B.C., 2012, uh, just to name a few. Uh, he also directed Midway, which I know um, is kind of out of the disaster lane, but I thought I'd mention it. Okay, so what is this movie about? We have um, the moon out of orbit, okay? The moon has a collision course with Earth, and it doesn't mean that the two are just gonna kind of play bumper cars and knock the other one into a new orbit. It means total catastrophe for all life on planet Earth. So here are our players two former NASA astronauts. We have Joe Fowler, played by Halle Berry, and Brian Harper, played by Patrick Wilson. They are brought back together. Uh, the two formerly served uh, in a, on a space mission some years ago, maybe maybe about a decade uh, before the film takes place. And they are brought together to fight the threat of the moon falling to Earth. Um, I say threat because we are joined by a self-informed expert on megastructures. Uh, that is someone who believes that the moon is actually a hollow object uh, who knows what's in Inside that hollow object, if it is so. Uh, but his name is Casey Hausman, and we have John Bradley, um, who I haven't really seen in any other uh, like major pictures. So I wonder if this is his first, uh, you know, large screen role after totally dominating the role as uh, Samuel Turley on Game of Thrones for any of you GOT fans. Um, but that's the that's the short of it. We do have um, a sort of conspiracy that we're navigating as you know, we are in the final days of seeing, um, you know, countries kind of uh, fall into chaos and anarchy because people are believing that the earth is doomed and their timeline is about uh, three weeks. And so it's kind of funny because, you know, if that doesn't remind you of something that we just talked about, uh, don't look up kind of follows the same premise of we are in our doom days, there's something hurtling towards earth from the sky, and we got to figure out how we're going to handle it. Uh, in this case, we are more so uh, focused on the science side of things and sci fi. Let's get our top-level reactions. I can toss over to you now, Brandon, and see, uh, did this movie live up to the hype, the shock, the sheer impact that we all were preparing for over here at Plot Devices? Yeah, impact is the word I would definitely use. Um, you mentioned Don't Look Up, and at the very least,
1: while you know we are on the same page that we don't think that movie is very good, it at least, Adam McKay has the idea with that movie that in the midst of catastrophe, Films should be, films and stories should be able to explore the ramifications of that, you know, within populace, within societies. And this doesn't really do that. Um, It, you kind of get a glimpse of it when, um, uh, when John Bradley's character finally like leaks the discovery and you kind of see, you know, the idea of, oh God, what's going to be happening in the riots and the religious fanatics who take over the streets. Like that's kind of interesting. The rest of the movie is not that. The rest of the movie is Roland Emmerich making a space-based sci-fi disaster movie that, it's kind of three movies in one. It's kind of character build up in the first act. It's all excitement in the middle. And the third act is kind of supposed to be exposition that we'll get to whether it works or not. Uh, for me, I had an okay time with this. I think overall, I wanted it to be more self-aware, more goofy, which is where I have to give praise to John Bradley. I think he is the only actor in this movie who knows what movie he's in, and he absolutely owns it. Like, he he knows the kind of comedy that's necessary for here. He makes somehow Emmerich and his co-writer, uh, Harold Cluster's dialogue, completely work. Uh, but other than that, I think everyone else is kind of on autopilot. Halle Berry is trying, but she's not really getting much. Charlie Plummer, who I love as, um, as Patrick Wilson's son, he's the most annoying character in this movie, and he really doesn't deserve to be. So again, like I want to go over to you for your thoughts, but like as far as basic thoughts, I wanted it to be more exciting. I thought it could be more self-aware, given what Roland Emmerich has been doing the last number of years. But yeah, it, it's disappointing, but it, I'm not going to argue with anyone who likes it.
0: I think we all had like big grins when we were talking moonfall earlier. Uh, and I gotta say this really, really surprised me because I was going into it going, yeah, like I'm ready for, um, the, the feelings I got when I watched 2012 where I was like, Oh my gosh is this what's going to happen in X amount of days? Cause it might've happened like before the actual new year came around. I was in high school and I loved it. I was like, this is a movie that is moving, but I got to say, I wasn't sure what I was watching because when I wanted it to, when the disaster started going down and I was waiting for like the chaos to continue, um, then it, it took a, it took a beat and it tries to um, do what is familiar for Roland Emmerich. And that is like, explore those emotional moments of disaster within family relationships. Um, it, I think it did that well in, in 2012, but here um, Halle Berry plays a single mother or a separated mother and her um, ex-husband is in um, the Department of Defense. And then Patrick Wilson um, plays, uh, he, of course, is separated as well. And he has a son who is an early adult um, who's getting into trouble because of, you know, maybe some influence that he thinks he gets from his dad. The whole family plot line, like there's a there's a plot which includes um, Halle Berry, Patrick Wilson, John Bradley, all um, putting their brains together and figuring out how they can save Earth. But then there's the B plot of all of their families. Uh, some additional cast members, yes, Charlie Plummer, uh, Michael Pena, and uh, Charlie Plummer was in this movie, Spontaneous. Brandon, did you ever see that? It was in my top five of 2020. I love that movie. Oh, yeah, that movie was that movie was great. For anyone who wants to check that out, because this movie does not give that man any justice. This man makes you. This movie makes you believe that that man has the the fraction of the talent that he shows in other projects. So it's unfortunate but yeah. Um the the stories that we follow with the family members on earth who are trying to just uh survive this disaster story, it just misses the mark. I think it misses the mark in the writing, it misses the mark in the execution, in the comedy and um even though they, you know, shoe in some very commercial heavy lexus like scenes um it doesn't make me believe that i can afford a lexus any more than i did before i saw the movie so i started to treat it like a comedy because i just believed what do these characters think they're going to do that they-, they can't shoot their glocks toward the sky like they can't break the moon um it, it was amazing because all of our main characters um have the sort of like immortality rule in the first half where no matter if the mile high wave is crashing right down behind them, they are escaping just in time. And so that was hilarious to watch. I do agree with you, Brandon. I think that John Bradley is the only one who knows what movie he's in. Uh Poor Patrick Wilson, man. The character of Brian Harper is bitter and very negative. And he's almost like supposed to be the the one like he's almost supposed to be the chosen one of the story the one who has to be on the mission because he's the one who can uh pilot a navigationless uh shuttle or a navigationless uh, rocket pretty much to have that as our main character um and do not have any you know really likable traits in him it, it made it hard to follow um i did enjoy seeing halle berry in this but again i think the writing like makes her character kind of fall flat Um, I don't really know what to attach to other than the fact that she is, she cares more about like the people around her rather than just her title at NASA. There's not much going on here. You know, the movie's two hours and 10 minutes long and you feel it, you know, it's not House of Gucci long, but you definitely feel it. Um, I'll tell you what though, the effects here are, you know, I think that they're. Though what you'd expect from this uh, level of production, I did find myself like kind of in awe at as the moon gets closer to Earth, its gravitational pull is so strong that it's pulling the oceans higher. And the way that they've shown that is um, refreshing. It's new. It's not just the sky high waves that we're used to seeing in some disaster flicks. Um, so I think special effects here are, are mentionable.
1: I want to get into spoilers, and I do just want to briefly, you know, you brought up 2012, which is a movie that I unabashedly like. Uh, it's one of Me the too. 2012 yeah. is watchable. It's good. It's entertaining. It's entertainment. It is. And, uh, like, I know Roland Emmerich has a specific style of entertainment that he likes to go to, and fair enough. Like, I like Independent Day for when it is. Like, I like Day After Tomorrow for what it is. 2012, I think, works because it tries to imbue this level of, like, specific emotional weight to its characters that doesn't always work, but at least it tries. And you mentioned in the Patrick Wilson thing, he is just so basic 1940s style leading man which is not patrick wilson's fault he's handsome but it's the fact that it role, the, the way that emmerich and are write his character it's just it's so static it is so just meant to be rootable and to its credit and we'll get into the third act stuff at the very least it doesn't go for that all the way it does acknowledge the characters that do work but at the same time you're right it, and it makes those choices every act like it seems like whether it's is a car chase or whether it's the stuff of the conspiracy theorist group. And we could talk about for a long time how this movie endorses conspiracy theorists. And I have thoughts on that. But at the same time, you're right. Like it's that problem multiplied by 20 throughout every act. And I wish it was more self-aware to know what Emmerich's style was. And that's disappointing.
0: This is a team of three that are um, out fixing a satellite in space. Uh, we, know that's, um, we know that's Halle Berry. We know that's Patrick Wilson and, and uh, the third astronaut that's part of their team. Well, something uh, there's like an anomaly that they encounter uh, it's nanotech, you know, spoiler alert, but no, it is nanotech. Casey Houseman is confirmed in this movie that the moon is hollow and built by ancient aliens um, harvesting a sun. So the only way that the team believes that they can get the moon back on orbit is if they travel inside of the moon and repair whatever is damaging that core.
1: Yeah, it, it doesn't work.
0: Um, it doesn't. It doesn't work. It doesn't work, Brandon.
1: And you know what? I hate to give credit to this movie because it, it doesn't Did you watch Independence Day Resurgence? Oh, you know I didn't. Spoilers for that movie. It expands the idea of the aliens, like the Galactic Federation, and like, you know, th- that we are bigger than the universe itself, like that whole thing. At the very least, that movie feels like it has weight to it because it's a sequel. It's supposed to be building on the first one. This one just goes for broke here. And I wouldn't hate it so much if one, again, it was so, more self-aware of its own goofiness and absurdity. And two, if it made a semblance of sense, like I can hate the stuff with the moon where it's like, they, they even make that thing at NASA where it's like, oh, how's the moon affecting volcanoes? Cause it's a mega moon and it just happens. Like I can make that work because again, it's moonfall. This on the other hand is played deadly serious by this AI character towards the end and it's supposed to work. And I was like, Okay, I literally took a couple minutes to look at my phone while that was happening to look up the plot synopsis to go like, no, wait, this can't happen here. Because if that group did this, then how did the swarm embed itself in the moon? And it was a kind of Ultron-like AI, then how did it get from here to here? Like, it doesn't make the sense that Roland Emmerich thinks it does, and it
0: should. And the big, you know, hoo-ha of the story is that uh, the threat that we're facing as a, you know, as a species is a rogue AI. So the big reveal in the third act is that uh, we belong to a species of humans that existed far before their time on Earth. um, And they had advanced to the the point of a utopia where we had no wars uh, with the assistance of our lovely AI until, boom, they all ganged up and threatened humanity. So... This advanced uh, civilization of humans uh, built these mega structures. We don't know how. What the hell? We're running with it. It's moonfall. It's like you're an hour and 45 minutes in. You might as well keep eating popcorn. And like, what are you going to do? Leave the theater? Exactly. At this point, I was like, well, I'm in it. Like there's no, I, I might as well just take it all in. So what happens is they travel to the moon. They are fighting this rogue AI that looks like a nanotech snake, but huge. And then there's another AI that's helping them. So we're like, hold on, two AIs. They're invited into a they're invited into this base that exists in on the inside of the moon. Keep in mind, we're in the hollow moon right now. While their ship is, you know, just devastated, demolished, and they can't fire off an EMP anymore. Patrick Wilson, on the meanwhile, being handed the knowledge of our people, of humans long before um, Long before their time on earth and instruction instructed that uh, this threat, you know, will not stop until all humanity is wiped out because they are the one um, threat to its own existence. They're just out here seeking independence. Good for them. Here's my problem with that. We are given so much exposition, but. It feels like you can't really do anything with this because this movie's not going to have a sequel. Let's let's just throw that. Let's put that out there right now. This movie's not going to have a sequel. And if it does, this is a money laundering scheme. This is Ozark season seven, because what? How can we do this? I know that role. I know that he has all the money, though. This is I mean, this he's an executive producer, so he probably like makes this stuff up and he's like, let's just roll with it.
1: Again, going back to the whole Casey thing, I like the idea that it's him. I like the idea of putting in that, like, oh, if you believe hard enough, then this thing comes into play. Like, that's kind of neat. I hate the fact that, again, it validates conspiracy theorists on this level and of this type of seriousness, but whatever.
0: I'm ready for a rating, Brandon.
1: For me, this is a very... uh, The thing is, I gave Don't Look Up a 4 out of 10, and I don't know if this is better or worse than Don't Look Up. You know what? I'm I'm giving it a solid 4, just because... I do think the middle is legitimately thrilling. I think the stuff between the actual takeoff sequence, the actual initial stuff with the moon coming to earth, that actually works. It's just sandwiched in between a whole lot of character build that isn't taken seriously and a whole lot of exhibitions that's taken way too seriously. The visuals, for the most part, are there. The excitement is there. If you're a Roland Emmerich junkie, you're going to love this. Maybe I've just outgrown some of it. Maybe I've just looked towards other pieces of fiction for that. But I didn't care for this.
0: I don't know if there's a lot for me to attach here other than like some of those visual effects scenes because they're kind of thrilling i'm so sorry i'm giving give this a three out of ten i think that's my lowest rating and that's sad because i really hated halloween kills and i gave that a six um i'm never gonna forget that i wish i gave it lower but and this is only it. half halloween kills <laughs> you're, oh, you're yeah um <laughs> Brandon, our next movie that we're talking about today is um, a movie that uh, we wanted to cover because you and I were both interested in it. It doesn't follow the traditional, you know, movie flow uh, or even a documentary. This is just a bunch of guys um, who are and they label themselves jackasses. This movie we're talking is jackass forever. Brandon. Brandon.
1: Jackass Forever. This is the fourth feature-length Jackass movie based on, of course, the highly, highly acclaimed 2002 series. And most of the main crew uh, come back to take part in the sense you have Johnny Knoxville, uh, Steve-O, Wee-Man, Chris Pontius, Deidre Aaron, Preston Lacey. Notably absent for most of the movie is Bam Margera, who was fired from the production, and uh, Ryan Dunn, who of course passed away in 2011. But aside from that, most of the crew is there. You also have uh, some newcomers to the group. You have Jasper Dolphin, who, if any of your Odd future Loiter Squad fans, you might know his name. You have Rachel Wolfson, who is a stand-up comic who Johnny Nexville has talked about discovering on Instagram. Uh, You have Zach Holmes from... Oh, God, what was the show he was on on MTV? Too Stupid to Die. Uh, A bunch of other new and old kind of names coming in there. And the whole movie is basically Jackass Again. It's an hour and a half of the guys, both new and old, doing these stunts that are insane and ridiculous but there's also kind of this weird self-awareness that i've actually really gravitated towards i did write a review for this for asu odyssey so go read that if you're more curious on my extended thoughts on that um no i want to go over to you first were you part of the initial like jackass pandemonium that raged through the year because we're around the same age like that raged around the early 2000s have you stuck with it at all and did this stick with you
0: Uh, I mean, honestly, yeah, I think so. I think that growing up, um, I watched MTV and that's what Jackass was on. They had a 30 minute uh, TV show that I would check in with whenever it was on TV. Wild Boys uh, was also um, uh, on TV and I would check that one out. I actually really liked that one because that one was more almost like nature driven. Like they were always doing something crazy with animals. And that's what I uh, that's what I kind of gravitate towards is all of the is all of their stunts that don't involve their bodies. Like when they start getting into those body stunts, it just makes me question the fact of whether these, whether these fools, whether these jackasses want to live long, like whether they want to, um, you know, extend their life to the fullest. Do they want to, do they want to build a family? Do they have, you know, am, ambitions for the future? Um, but there is something special about seeing all of them. It's nice to see uh, more members joining their group, but, I think that the thing I gravitate towards is the mere shock that they go for. Like is some of these stunts really do set the bar for like what, these what humans can achieve with their bodies uh what your mental state can withstand even from people that you call friends all around you um a uh, lots of these guys have been hurting and hurling their bodies on camera uh for our entertainment and it's been going on for decades i remember seeing jackass i think i saw jackass 3 um in theaters me like myself and my dad went to go see it and um it it was just a crazy time because um you know we're we're cracking up together and then the names like becoming you know carved in your brain you know you always remember the name johnny knoxville steve-o we man like i feel like that's those are uh table names like if you mention them around a circle of people who grew up during this time they're gonna know who those stuntmen are um surprisingly enough i I never got upset when i saw johnny knoxville like as accredited like in a credited role in other movies um i think that he can act uh so it was nice seeing him um but this movie really is kind of like a jackass special um it acts uh, it just kind of follows a series of stunts um without any kind of uh narrative driven behind it over over what this means for the group uh there are a couple you know um camera moments where you'll get members of the group uh, turning over and talking about uh, how long it's been since they've all been together or what it feels like to still be here. And uh, I appreciated hearing that. I think that's why I wanted to come see Jackass Forever is just to kind of get some of that retrospect and understand um, what it means for these for these men to still be around you know it's special because yeah um they did have some they did have some losses uh, go on in their group and it's got to be heartbreaking but uh it's so nice to know that there's still love there's still so much love and um community that they have within each other i got to move on to one thing though this movie goes for shock and it gets there i think yep. that my eyes were glued to the screen even at times when i didn't want them to be um my eyes were glued to the screen because the stunts that they're pulling here um they they all are setting setting a bar like i said like um if they're involving any kind of sports aspect to it like they're bringing in like the fastest softball pitcher. Uh, we're bringing in, um, hockey players and, uh, for any sports fans, I bet you these will be familiar names for you. Uh, but for myself, it was just exciting just to see the caliber that they're really going for here, because this is going to be, um, you know, the new high for anyone who wants to do something like this, um, which please do not do something like this. (laughs) Um, What did you think about that aspect, Brandon, like them kind of reaching for the stars when it came to what kind of stunts they were pulling off?
1: Yeah, we should we should preface what this movie says at the start, which is what every jackass product has, which is do not try these. Uh, These are trained professionals and you should not be doing these. I can sum this up with two statements. One, I was never a jackass fan. I, I as a kid, I always thought it was really stupid and juvenile and kind of frankly terrifying, contrasted to that. I had maybe one of the most fun theater-going experiences I have ever had at the screening of Jackass Forever. Because everyone was laughing and screaming and squealing at the same parts, and it was a collective experience I will never forget. And in that sense, and in a couple others, I had a lot of fun with this movie. Uh, I think it reflects the idea of Jackass maybe more than anything else the property has. I think that's only come with age. I think for me, kind of seeing the reverence they have for, you know, Buster Keaton and a lot of, you know, kind of the older generation of stunts before them and kind of where stunt work has gone just in the past 10 years, let alone the last 50, I think kind of seeing that progress and that respect and that general love for that made me appreciate it more beyond the fact of just like, it feels the most, the camaraderie feels the most sincere in this. Like there are moments in this where I was legitimately angry, but for the most part, I felt a really great connection between the guys jasper and rachel wolfson and zach like they all fit in great uh the stunts feel unique three movies and whatever but it's like two or three seasons of the original show in like somehow it feels fresh with this movie i will say the amount of male nudities was certainly jarring but i think they use it to their discretion and they you know they know how to make it work properly there are again some stunts that may be legitimately angry at kind of the lack of you know let's say sincerity about it but for the most part i was really engaged with it more than i thought
0: i was all right. You want to talk male nudity. Let's talk jackass forever. The movie the opens scene. up with a um, dinosaur disguised as a penis. Oh, wait, no, I meant penis disguised as a dinosaur. And what's so funny is when you watch these movies and you grow familiar with the cast, I'm like, I think I know who that is. And I'm sorry if that's inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry if I'm inappropriate, uh, but <laughs> that's just how you feel when you watch these movies. Um, it is... Nonetheless, something I can't take my eyes off because they are pushing their limits. And if this is Jackass forever, yeah, they're letting you know that they were they, they weren't saying no to anything on the table. And so, you know, take take that for what you will. Um, as Brandon says, if you are looking for that uh, community reaction and that kind of that feeling of, um, I don't know, togetherness in an audience, like you, you only get that from certain type of movies. And if you go to this movie, maybe on like a weekend night, I can see you having a great time with the people who are sitting around you.
1: Totally. And I feel like the stunts, again, like I won't spoil them, but there's that double header of you mentioned the bear scene, but the one immediately after, which is, let's just call it the paddle ball sequence that I was audibly gagging at. Um, a lot of it just feels again, pushing the envelope even more so, which again, I respect the guys for being able to do, but at the same time, it just made me just squirm my seat for an hour and a half. But again, I think it's effective because at this point, we use the term legacy sequel a lot, whether it's, you know, Halloween or Star Wars or whatever. And I think this makes it work, maybe the most like, again, sincere that it's felt. I felt like there was a and a safety precaution. Like, I feel like the safety precautions are a lot bigger on this, partly because this was filmed uh, halfway during COVID. So they had to, but I kind of, I know some people might think of that as like less visceral for the matter. But again, as someone who never really attached to that level of jackass, I didn't really care. I was excited to see these guys having fun and loving what they do. Maybe one last time, because again, most of them are approaching their 50s right now and have families and God help them if they're not sterile with everything else that's going on. I mean, everything else. Uh, But again, like the new cast are great. I really liked a lot of the visuals they got of it. I cannot say this movie is smart. I can simply say I had fun with it. And I agree with Noah. If you are trepidatious, don't see it. Like, if you've never been a fan, you may not be like me as a convert
0: um and I, I do want to take a moment just ask you brandon you know what was one of those stunts that you you think was um you know something out of left field but you really found yourself like you know you're you were glued to the screen like you really wanted to see it happen
1: i mean obviously the opening scene which was um i mean the the jackass movie it's honestly
0: it, it's great like the 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 different scenes that they intercut with what's happening with the stomping of the dinosaur i actually i found that really funny
1: it is, and it's paced well. Like, it's a great kind of thing of just like, what is this going to be? And then the initial joke is, it, oh, it's Pontius' dick. But then there's more to it. And, like, it just keeps going. And, like, there's more levels to it. And I really enjoy Beyond, like, when we see in the credits, like, the actual stunts behind it, again, which are really cool. Uh, but I do have to give props to, um again, this is a stupid one. It's a stupid one with uh, Eric Andre in and the uh, coffee shop. uh The coffee kiosk, I should say. It's yes. so stupid. It just comes out of left field. Uh, and I should also just quickly mention, this isn't a stunt, but it's the one early on where they're doing the uh, slap trivia, where they're trying to, where if they get a question wrong, it slaps their, you know, genitals. And Danger Aaron has a question of, spell the word dumbbell, and he is just dumbstruck by how to spell it, and I was trying to hold myself together from laughter.
0: Because who knows how to spell dumbbell? I'm telling you, <laughs> are there two Bs or one I don't know. I wouldn't be able to survive that either. What you have here is, um, at the very end at the credit scene. Um, it's so nice because we get a montage of not only the stunts that weren't included, um, because there are so many that they must have had to like edit out or like, you know, say, Hey, we just got better ones that we got to include. Um, but there's also, um, the side by side, uh, playback of what the original stunt was, um, X, or x amount of years ago and then how they how they reiterated it this time around and they do that with a handful of stunts so that was a pleasure to watch if you're going to this movie um it's not going to be hard to sit through the entire credits i promise you um totally.
1: and like and that goes to the idea of legacy more like if you're a jackass fan this will make you feel like you've been invested in something that is not big but feels bigger than it should be for such a long time
0: i don't know what this skit is called i think it's called like scorpion botox or something yes, like that with, uh, Rachel Wilson. with Rachel Wilson. And let me tell you, never would I invite a scorpion to not only be approached to my face, but then irritated so that it could sting me in and around my lips. That scene was hard to watch for me, but I just think that they did it so well. She is such a soldier, man. She took those scorpion stings like, like nothing, like they were a pokes from a toddler, like It it is insane. The level of, um, I'm gonna say emotional battery, because I remember learning that from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Emotional battery that all these people have, especially Zach, newcomer Zach. He is thrown, he is rolled, he is wedgied. It is, it's a good time, but I don't know if it's a good time for Zach.
1: Yeah, like most of the cast are great, but you're right. Rachel and Zach are fearless in this. Like they better be getting work after this. You know, how do you want to
0: approach ratings here?
1: I mean, I'd give it a rating for Odyssey. I'd say it by 8 out of 10. I think this is not for everyone. I think it can be genuinely squeamy, and I do wonder about some of the emotional distress of some of the cast members, uh, particularly Danger Aaron, who has just put through the ringer with, again, that bear sketch. But at the same time, I think this is not the nicest, but I think it is the most welcoming jackass movie. I think it's the most complete jackass movie. I think if you're going into it as a fan, you're going to be consistently entertained. If you're even mildly a fan, you will get a lot out of it. And if you're not, there's a chance you'll be like me and just really open up to what it's going with the work, with the humor, and just, again, with the camaraderie around it. It's, I believe it's going to be on Paramount Plus in probably a month or so. I'd be shocked if it wasn't. If you want to see it in theaters, it is there.
0: For my rating, I'm going to go ahead and give this a six and a half. Um, while I did have fun watching it and I did find... Um, myself as like kind of one of those legacy fans, I was entertained just to see these familiar faces all, uh, putting themselves back in the arena. Um, I do think that it would, um, they just seem more fitting if I would have had this streamable at home because it did not have kind of, um, something that, uh, made it feel, uh, I guess, cinematic and so i guess maybe i was looking for that just one touch uh rather than just walking into a jackass special um but that's how, if that's how you want to treat it and that's what you find um that you can attach to then uh this is certainly watchable um but i think for those reasons i'm gonna uh, give this a six and a half and uh once it's on paramount plus uh or another streamable option um definitely check it out because these stunts are wild for our final movie review today, we are going to talk uh, a new Zoe Kravitz flick. But we are getting some Zoe Kravitz familiarity before we dive into the Batman next month. Uh, today, though, we are talking about a new HBO Max release and its name. The title is Kimmy.
1: This is uh, Steven Soderbergh's latest. Uh, if you are anywhere in the culture of film history and film and independent uh, cinema production, you know the name Steven Soderbergh. He's been in a run with uh, HBO Max in the last couple of years with uh, Let Them All Talk with uh, Meryl Streep and Lucas Hedges, and no sudden move from last year with a bunch of people Benicio Del Toro, John Cheadle. Both of those films I really enjoy. Again, a lot of his earlier filmography I'm not familiar with, but he is an incredibly important figure in the uh, production of independent cinema. This is his latest project, uh, written by David Kep, who we you know from a lot of blockbusters, Indiana Jones stuff like that. And stars, as uh, Noah's radically mentioned, Zoe Kravitz, who pops up as Angela Child. She is a audio editor slash algorithm developer for this company uh, who makes this product called Kimmy, which is voiced by uh, Betsy Brantley. Fun fact, is actually Steven Soderbergh's ex-wife. I actually learned about that in the research for this. Uh, Kimmy is sort of like this Siri-esque Apple service, although they take steps in the movie to tell you, no, she's not like Siri. She learns, but she doesn't listen. Like, that would be uh, be wrong. Uh, We follow Angela in the midst of a fictionalized version of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, she is agoraphobic. She suffered from uh, a lot of violence in her past. She doesn't like to go outside unless it's absolutely necessary. Eventually we get around to a point where she's discovering this uh, audio stream and finds something she probably shouldn't have. Uh, it's terrifying and disturbing and she has to go through five her channels. Her bosses at the company, one of which is uh, played by Andy Daly, who doesn't take her seriously, but then she gets in touch with uh, Rita Wilson's character who is another one of her bosses at the company. Unfortunately, she has to come to her to get the audio recordings to her and get the whole thing settled. So we now have to follow Angela in the midst of, again, going through trauma of her own and personal issues of her own, trying to venture out of her apartment, all while there are protests about a housing development that's going on. You also have a couple of supporting characters in there. Uh, Byron Bowers from a couple of uh, Comedy Central stuff, he plays Terry, who is uh, Angela's love interest in the film. You have Jamie Campbell from Jane the Virgin, who opts up as a sort of antagonistic gangster-like figure later in the movie. Uh, there's a couple of surprises in there that I won't give anything away. But again, the movie is mostly about Angela's character and her internal struggle, but also the external struggle of the idea of, I need to get this to the police, I need to get this to the authorities, and what happens there. Noah, I want to go over to you first. I don't I don't take you for a Soderbergh fan, but please enlighten me if you are, uh, if you know I just did this past And you and I were both supposed to talk about Kimmy until I screwed up and completely left off the docket. Uh, so what did you think going into this, and does Kimmy work as an effective tech thriller?
0: I am actually not so uh, familiar with Steven Soderbergh. I had to pull up just his filmography before me, before um, we started recording this, because I don't think that um, I'm as familiar with his work. Now, regarding that, I think that this genre of um, sci-fi technology, um, kind of futuristic thriller um, is really in my alley. I mean, that first trailer, when we heard... um, you know, Kimmy's electronic voice coming through and we saw a blue haired uh, Zoe Kravitz. I was already turned on to the fact that this is going to be a movie where um, she's communicating with a voice on the other end. And we're not sure if that voice is going to be at all involved with a, a murder plot. Um, and so I was expecting something a little bit different, but what they've got here is a, uh, a short tale. And by short, I mean, it's 90 minutes uh, and it definitely works. It's focused. Um, I'm so happy that this came um, without kind of, without kind of all the attention all the marketing to make this seem like it was going to be some big huge hbo release um instead you know we got a trailer a couple weeks ago um maybe a teaser or two and then we got the release date and i think that that uh that made me appreciate it all the more because it was a nice um tight little story and um you know if we want to start talking um some high points some low points of the story um of the movie itself um i gotta say i just i found myself um really having a good time with this i'm happy that you and i decided to cover it here
1: honestly saying this i'm bearing the lead this movie's great uh i really like this and if we're going by like that whole you seen that like political compass of like libertarian conservative like that kind of thing if we're going that based on like with jackass forever effective but not smart this is effective and smart uh it, in a lot of ways that i wasn't expecting because i think you and i when we first talked about the trailer again not on the show because i am an idiot uh when we first talked about the trailer i think we kind of both had the idea that oh the the Kimmy system is going to be the main sort of villain. Like, it's going to be that thing about, you know, how AI tendencies screw up a lot of our personal connections. And this is kind of that. Uh, Kimmy is still very much a main character and a main focus in the movie. But at the same time, it's not really about that. It's very much styled as a just really effective thriller. Like, the villain is who you expect. The plot points are kind of mostly where you expect them to go. But God, Steven Soderbergh does them so well. And he maneuvers them so well in terms of pacing and shot composition. And all of it is led by, I don't think, an ever better Zoe Kravitz. I don't think I've ever seen her in a better role than this. She absolutely owns the, the yes, certainty of the character. Because the thing is, it would be so easy to just portray her as, you know, shy and feeble. And that's not what Soderbergh does. She's incredibly strong. She's incredibly determined of herself. She knows what she wants. I mean, heck, even all the stuff with uh, Byron Bowers' character, like, she instigates all of that. But at the same time, she's dealing with very real trauma that the movie knows how to examine. And credit to David Koepp's screenplay as well for the choice that they make in that. Like in trying to examine Angela as a survivor of this trauma and this abuse, but in a way that feels feels heartening and a way that feels realistic to her character and to the real world implications of that character. So I'm just really impressed by what it goes for and how well it succeeds at that
0: when we're talking about expectations from the movie um, you know, other movies that involve kind of like uh, you know, an AI that you don't know if it's threatening or not are um or I guess threatening is the wrong word because I wanted to bring up examples of um, other movies where I've appreciated the same kind of universe. So yes, Brandon is right. The enemy is who you expect. And then the threats kind of come from all directions when we're working with Angela child's um, whether it's coming from the anxiety she faces at leaving her home, um, not only because of uh, the trauma that she has faced and that she possibly may face in the real world again, but because this movie also incorporates um, its own pandemic. Um, but it's not kind of like, it's not, I I would say uh, pressured upon us to like live in the same world that we're living in outside of the movie. So I was thankful of that. Like, yes, there are some masks and there are some um, like writing. um, There are some, Things in the writing that tell you that there is a pandemic going on in this universe. Um, But I was happy that it was just like mentions. Like it, it didn't seem like they were trying to make the same world that we live in now. Um, this movie, like I said, I love how fast the more the story moves. We understand a little bit of background about Kimmy and like what her role is or what the what the technology's role is. We meet our protagonists, we know their routine. And as soon as their routine is shaken up, this story moves like it takes off running. Uh, speaking of running, there's a beautiful chase scene in this movie. And when it is on, it's on, uh, camera work. I really appreciate here. Um, I, I liked, uh, the different sets that we were navigating through. It definitely feels like a little bit of like a parkour, parkour kind of moment. Um, and it works. I think that, um, they pull off some cool stunts here. Uh, one of which is there's like a rally. Um,
1: oh, I know where in- you're going with this.
0: Yes. There's like a rally in the city that uh, Angela like races through and she kind of cuts through them, but then she's pulled right into a van. And thankfully the community of uh, ralliers outside of her, um, it, it's her own fight while she's inside the van because she can't really open the door and the people outside can't get it open for her. Well, she reaches out and she finally does get it open and she manages to grab the hand of someone and that van takes off, but because they're holding onto her, she kind of just like slips out of the van. And it's a really cool stunt. I um. I, when I watched it, I thought, "Damn, they must have been proud when they finally got that because it looks really clean." Um, and there is, uh, there is, there are some side characters that I think, uh, with their incorporation, it felt even more real to believe in my uh, in, to believe the main character's struggles, um, both in the real world and with the the things she's working on personally. And uh, there's conversations with her mother, with her doctor, with her dentist, even all happening through Zoom uh, because of the main the because of the main Uh, hurdle of you know she cannot leave her home but it works so well for her character because it's it's almost it'll be redeeming for her to save a life by like knowing she's going to put hers in danger and not you know we we consider putting ourselves in danger when we go out and um experience the real world not knowing if you know any kind of cases can be carried around us but for her she's actually being hunted she's actually being her life is on the line because Kimmy's network Kimmy's um you know the corporation she belongs to they're out together. they don't want this murder to go out it's all a cover-up scheme and so um that's not so much a spoiler as much as it is you know a reason for you to check this movie out because the way that it's executed um is very well done um I liked the I liked the final scene. It gave me like panic room vibes of like turning on your intruder. Um, and that that's what I appreciated here. Uh, you know, I have nothing but good things to say. I thought that um, the runtime made this just made, I like this movie. The runtime made me love this movie.
1: This movie, has no fat on it. And I think that that only goes to the third act, which minor criticism. I think some of the actual, like, tech hacking stuff, I think that's the least realistic part of the movie. I think the whole, like, guy in the basement of, like, his mother, like, finding out where Angela is, like, that seemed a bit off. But it's only because, again, like you said, the rest of the movie feels so grounded. And I said a fictionalized version of the COVID-19 pandemic because, yes, as you mentioned, masks, social distancing, you know, work from home, those are all things in this movie. And obviously the, the escalation of protests as well as a part of it. But I love how Soderbergh, takes that energy and implies that to here is what probably should have happened in those circumstances like did you watch a lockdown with Anne hathaway the other year
0: oh no 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 no! how was that
1: i enjoyed it no one else did um but the, the reason i bring it up is because that is also a piece of pandemic fiction that very much revels in what we know and understood about the about the COVID 19 pandemic at that level and this is very much like the pandemic exists But the problems and story and setup of it are very much of our character. And not only is Zoe Kravitz incredibly game to take those challenges on, Soderbergh and Kep are talented enough to, again, keep it moving whenever it needs to, slow it down when it needs to. And that 90-minute runtime means that nothing else is put to the table. Like, when it is, it's only in service of the vision, which I could do with a couple of the nuances without, but otherwise, it's completely streamlined. I just could not believe how quickly it went by, specifically that third act, when, I won't spoil it, but when Angela finally gets her due, and it's satisfying. And then just last point, uh, Cliff Martinez, who has been uh, Soderbergh's regular composer since basically the beginning. Uh, he hasn't worked with them since The Nick, like seven or eight years ago, but he finally comes back to score his movies, and I missed his scores so much. He's a fantastic composer, and he really, again, put that kind of slight techno boost to it that really works to a movie that where tech is an element but is not the main focus. So I really appreciated that. We'll go on to ratings as we've talked way too much about a ninety-minute, you know, nothing throw on HBO Max that should be way more. Noah, uh, over to you. What do you
0: think? Yeah, it's hilarious when we spend more time talking about a movie we rate so low than less time talking about a movie that's just so well done. Because and that's we care. the care. Because we care, exactly. And it's because the movie speaks for itself. So that's why we got to limit our comments and make sure you just go check it out. My rating for this movie is going to be an easy eight and a half out of 10. Uh, it's definitely got me excited to see Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman. And I know she's not going to drop the ball. I know nobody on that team is. And, um, you know, I'm adding this to my list of techno sci-fi movies that I will show my friends and family when they care about what I watch. Just kidding. I know you all love me.
1: When you're scared of the future, watch Cammy. Deal. (laughs) Um, Yeah, this is, I'm with you, easy 8.5 out of 10. This is, I don't know if it's among Soderbergh's best because again, a lot of his early material I'm just not familiar with, uh, but it's incredibly well-crafted. It knows exactly what it wants to be. It has a focus to its story, but also an incredibly nuanced take on agoraphobia and abuse and anxiety that i think is anchored so again i cannot stress this enough zoe kravitz is brilliant in this i haven't seen a concern from her since like uh oh god what was it gemini in like 2017 i cannot wait for her again for Bat- for batman thank you so much for reminding me that it's only like a couple of weeks away and we're gonna have to deal with it eventually um but again this is incredibly stylish i've seen no one talking about it it's only 90 minutes go check it out we both love this
0: and that's going to wrap our review section of this episode. We can move on to our crazy, wacky, wild multiverse um, movie TV stream wars segment of the show. Uh, we are talking The Witcher and we will have a guest from the Cronkite School. Her name is Haley Forbus joining us for that conversation. Uh, but before we reach that, we're actually going to start with a review of the Book of Boba Fett Part 2. The series wrapped just about a couple weeks ago on Disney+, Plus, but myself and Brandon have not gotten time to get to it on the pod. Uh, We did have an intro review of the first three episodes, but now we're playing catch-up and talking to y'all about the final episodes.
1: Yeah, so Book of Boba Fett's second half. Again, we're getting into spoilers. The show has ended, so if you have not watched it, just come back when you watch the series. It's only seven episodes. I would encourage you to do so, but again, reviews have been mixed. Take it for what you want. Uh, We come back to Book of Boba Fett, uh, just, again, summing up the last four. Episode four, Boba and Fennec are trying to find new muscle for their gang, trying to find out, you know, how Tatooine works, whether or not the underbelly is more deeper than they think. Episode five is basically Mandalorian season three, episode one, where we pick up with uh, Din Jarn from the Mandalorian, played once again by Petra Pascal, uh, and his journey, kind of where he's been at, his stuff with the Darksaber and all that. Uh, Chapter six, we kind of go back to Boba a little bit, but also stick with Din and his reunion with Yes, Grogu is back, and Luke Skywalker himself is also back. Uh, Once again, motion captured by uh, Mark Hamill, and I'm forgetting the bodies double, but I will have that in the conversation later on, but their kind of story. And finally, episode seven, everything comes to a head with the big battle in Mos Espa. Will Boba Fett reign supreme as the Daimyo, or will he fall, or maybe something in between? Maybe he realizes that his story is much more complicated than he so thinks. Uh, Noah, we finally got around to the last four episodes. There's been a lot of discussion online about these, uh, good and bad at least as far as I've seen. What did you think of this? Because I, I kind of forget what your initial impressions were and I want to get your impression of just the last half where a lot of fan y stuff comes into play.
0: Ooh, okay. Yeah, that's kind of giving me a hint of like what this conversation is going to feel like. Um, how did I feel about that last half of Bo- Book of Boba Fett? So we have that, uh, what I call the care package cast of Ahsoka, uh, Mando, Grogu, and Luke. Um, we have uh, training sequences that uh, remind us of training with Yoda and Luke. Uh, so we have reminiscence there. That's definitely fan service. And I don't know what I can say about that right now. Um, and then we have a lot of time spent with those new uh, flashy racers that uh, were introduced around the early episodes uh, who rode those cool speeder bikes. It feels that this show should be cooler than what it is. Um, and I and I mean that comment because when I was watching uh, even some of the final episodes um, I got around to um, in the past day. And it felt like there are stunts in this series that um, feel misplaced. Um, With that being said, I think that every uh, shootout, you know, was kind of, uh, it it incorporates 360s, maybe a wall jump, maybe a flip over here, um, some acrobatics over there. And I think that it's, when when I'm thinking about it now, it makes me think of the Star Wars that we uh, all grew up with, which acrobatics were always expected of the Jedi. So maybe we're giving something to our, um, you know non you know non-force wielders so that they can be as as flashy in fight sequences um, but it's, it was almost distracting like I, I would see um you know a rescue scene happen um before one of them does a 360 then ends up on their knees and then shoots somebody right in the face and i'm like ooh that was supposed to be a really cool moment but it kind of just felt like i was you know, watching a performance. And uh, I guess I'm still finding my comments around how I feel about that. Uh, I am happy the show ended the way it did. It had this huge action sequence at the very final episode that uh, brings in uh, Mando. And I, I always appreciate Pedro Pascal's voice. He owns that character so well. And, um, it, it, it's a shame to say, but I think that I, it, it makes me miss the Mandalorian. I feel that uh, I did have more fun just exploring more characters in the sanctuary, um, the bar on Tatooine. Uh, and I wish Tatooine was a little prettier. I think uh, as I was sitting there uh, episode to episode I was kind of like, damn, Tatooine is ugly. Um, I'm not surprised. We spent so much, we spent so little time there in the movies. And then we immediately hopped over to Endor or Hoth or Naboo and, this is a little bit dull, like it's, it's a little bit uh, dry here.
1: Here's the thing. I agree with a lot of the criticism about the show. It can feel too muddled. Around episode five, it does kind of lose its focus. It is structured weird even in the initial episodes. And yes, it probably should have been nine episodes considering what we see in the finale. I agree with all of those things. I really like this show and I really like this show because as someone who for years never got the cult of Boba Fett, so to speak, the idea that he's this grander than life character who's just so amazing and so badass Like I never understood that. Now I get it. Like I, I saw the taste of it with Mandalorian season two. Now I see it. Like I understand Boba as a character more than I ever have. I really like the idea that Robert Rodriguez and Dave Filoni and John Favreau and the whole team behind this, really imbue a lot of symbolism into the show, whether it's him with the Tuscans, whether it's him with Fennec, whether it's him with any of the characters that comes across it, Chrysanthemum even. And that idea of the, the muscle turning into the leader reluctantly, because there's the idea of taking power and the idea of earning it. And I like the idea of Book of Boba Fett really exploring that through the lens of Boba, who himself has been through a lot like, as a character that we don't think about, whether it's him with Django, whether it's him being raised by Bounty Hunters in the Clone Wars, like, all of that is there and all that history is there, particularly in the last couple of episodes when Cad Bane shows up and it's awesome. But even more than that, it's that idea of Bane is what Boba was supposed to be. He was supposed to just go through life as one thing and be the best at it. And Boba has transcended that. And I love that idea behind it. There is also, obviously, the Mandalorian stuff. Uh, Din Djarin being back is awesome. Pitcher Pascal owns the role. I should briefly mention... <coughs> I should briefly mention uh, I was looking up the uh, body double for Luke and I had it and I just lost it again because I'm an idiot.
0: Uh, Honestly, man, I think that they played a joke with us on the Internet, I think, a while back. But I think Sebastian Stan should play Luke. Like, I think that he could be a good stand in for Luke. I don't know about you, but that's how I feel
1: uh graham hamilton was the uh, onset double for luke and i think he actually does a better job than the guy from season one but frankly and i'm with you sebastian sand should play young luke at some point and i don't know why they haven't invested in that yet uh but no luke comes back i like the idea of what he does obviously there's questions about the whole you know digital synthesized voice and everything and i don't take that lightly i understand that's weird but i like that they did some pointed out about grogu being a kind of parallel to uh to boba in that sense about people who were raised to be one thing and that had to be another and i like that whole the idea of the Faloni Fabro dynasty that we've been getting on Disney+, that theme being that they, you are bigger than what you have been raised by and you can rise above whatever it can be, I like that idea. And I think Boba Fett, for the most part, explains that well. I like what Fennec does. I like the set
0: pieces. And it marks kind of one of the first times we get Mando using his dark saber, which I appreciated, of course, you know, he finally got that at the end of season two. And uh, we know the lore behind that thing. So when I'm watching it on screen, I'm like, oh, look at this relic weapon. Like, it just it still looks like completely badass. And we have what looks like droidicas, but they are like the dads and the the parents of droidicas. So when they come in, (laughs) yeah, they're Daddy (laughs) Cuz. When they come in on episode of, or when the finale happens, they come in and I was like, oh, that kind of looks like them because we get an x-ray shot of them first. And then when they're when they approach the the party, that's when their shields pop and I was like, oh, okay, like this is what I thought it was. Um and we get a nice Grogu moment, which, you know, when you watch it, you'll find it so warming and also, uh, you know, kind of at a moment where your heart was was racing for Mando and you're like, oh no, this isn't even your show. Like what's going to happen? Um, that that was amazing to watch. Uh, but I wonder, it just makes me doubt whether the show can really stand uh, without, you know, the, the crutch of those characters, those supporting, those supporting cast members who already like lead their own series. Um, I wonder if Boba Fett can, um, if the book of Boba Fett will stay here long or if we can, or if we are going to explore maybe a few more stories here before uh, he reverts back to uh, the familiar face that he was uh, prior to this series uh, and maybe then he can pop up more in The Mandalorian. I do like the relationship he has with Fennec but uh, you know, it'd be an interesting to see what they invent for him to do but I don't want it to feel like they lose what the character really was at the beginning. Uh, that's where I am.
1: I will also say, as far as just, you know, the Pike Syndicate, which I do, I am a fan of. I like the stuff from the Clone Wars and Rebels that we've gotten with them. But at the same time, you gotta wonder, if the Pikes are such a threat, why do you need to bring in a fan-favorite bounty hunter in the last two episodes to make them seem like more of a threat?
0: I, I do have to wonder that. I didn't know who Cad Bane was. So when you mentioned him being in the Clone Wars, I knew he had to have some kind of legacy behind him because of the power that that character portrays when he's on screen. And when we have Cad Bane enter, Cad Bane has, you know, a cowboy hat. They have, uh, you know, back and forth negotiations. I think that those are moments where I, I am scared of the character and he looks threatening. So I believe it.
1: Totally. And Cory Burton comes back to voice in Clone Wars, and he's excellent. Uh, I do then have to ask you then, because we see partially the Mandalorian expanding groups with this. We, we see kind of where Ahsoka's going. We see Grogu's journey. We see Din's journey. Where then do we take Mandalorian Season 3 going from here? Because we've gotten comments saying that this is basically Mandalorian 2.5. So where does this lead into? Do we see Bo-Katan back? Do we see Mandalore kind of rise again with either Boba or Din at the helm? What would you like to see from that based on just this?
0: If this is where we're taking it, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is... Uh, Grogu partner, re-partnering with Mando, right? Yeah, Din and Grogu are back. Yeah. That was such little time spent with Luke where it was like the big like handoff at season two. So I I think maybe I even shed a tear because I was like, oh, Grogu, like you're leaving. Like we're not going to have Dadalorian anymore. Um, but then they're like, oh no, like, now he's back. So I'm not upset about it. I definitely think their dynamic is, is wonderful. You know, he plays the excellent, um, I am going to call him a sidekick, like Grogu plays the excellent sidekick that comes in and has the overpowering, you know, Trump card that he can play, uh, that can wipe out, you know, honestly the biggest threats that Mando faces, but then he's disabled. And then he ends up like kind of immobile, uh, for some period of time. So I have always, I like those power dynamics. I liked, um, of course, the relationship building. Mando so clearly is fond of Grogu, and he did not want to say goodbye to him. So the fact that they're continuing their relationship gives me hope for them and for the series. Uh, but where can we go with it now? He's got the dark saber, and, he,
1: and he's technically not a Mandalorian anymore—at least according and, to the armor.
0: So right, right. He is, is disbanded from the from his like his code of family that he had been following since the days before. I think what happens from here in Mandalorian season three, and I don't know if there's a season
1: four confirmed, but if season three is the big thing that happens with Ahsoka and Rangers of the New Republic, I think you're going to see a lot of more, you know, going to Mandalore. You're going to see Grogu's journey, as I mentioned, the kind of paralleling between his Mandalorian heritage and his Jedi heritage. I think you're going to see more of Din coming to grips with his own placement of like, Yes, he has. He's been raised by the uh, Children of the Watch. He's basically an extremist, but he also has, you know, Boba and Fennec people reasonable by his side. So I want to see that conflict more, and I want to see where all of that kind of coalesces to.
0: And I think we're ready for a rating.
1: Let's do it. Uh, Rating overall for the series, I might be unpopular with this. Eight out of ten. I had a lot of fun with this. I think there's a lot of really great symbolism to it. You could have expanded Boba and Fennec's roles as the Diamonds of Tatooine even more. That being said, I really like what we get. I think it's poignant to the characters. It ups Boba to a status that, frankly, he's never been to before. I'm sorry to piss off long-term fans, but he's never been that, and now he is. Uh, the whole series, again, streaming on Disney+, Plus. I don't believe we got the Season 2 confirmation. I hope we do. I'd like to see more of this crew with Chris and the mob crew even more. But I really appreciated this. I really like what it's going for. And, yeah, cheers to Season 3 when it comes out.
0: Six and a half out of ten. Um, while he did find That's it entertaining... Fair. <laughs> yeah right i think with my comments i think that's more aligned with like how i felt the show impacted me um you know where i'm a fan of and uh we'll talk about it when season three of Mando drops but as somebody who grew up and like the uh <clears throat> the original trilogy really really plays with the character of boba fett and then uh i grew up watching the prequels uh trilogy in theaters and i think that that's where um i just understood one side of who the fets were but this series, as Brandon says, really reclaims the character of Boba on the home turf of Tatooine. And I think that that's, that's just gives so much credit to the story writers because that is a wonderful thing to have happen in this universe for future payoffs. Um, the relationships, the team building. Um, I was going to mention the green dudes. They, I had to Google them because I couldn't remember their names, but they're called uh, Gomorians, And uh, they're like the green-skinned, this is what Google says, the green-skinned pig-like humanoids um that kind of travel around with uh boba fett and in the final battle they're they're fighting too um but it's unfortunate i think they both take a tumble over a cliff and it kind of breaks my heart because i wanted them to live um just because they were just these husky like uh guards that were hanging out with boba fett but i think it's gonna be something to pay attention to i wonder if uh we'll cover it if it gets renewed for season two i wonder if we'll cover it over here happy to see what's in store for the star wars world If
1: I have anything to say about it, we will cover Star
0: Wars stuff when it comes out. (laughs) Okay, right. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. And if I have anything to say about it, we're going to cover me thinking about a series. (laughs) 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 All right.
1: And it's a show that we put off for a couple of weeks now because we had to get the right third. And, you know, Noah and I can obviously do this, but we had to get someone else in for this. We're going to be talking Witcher Season 2, uh, dropped on Netflix, I believe, about a month and a half ago about now. Uh, at least as far as you're listening to this right now. Joining us today, uh, Cronkite student and uh, also from ASU Odyssey, uh, partially, that we uh, had the connection with, Haley Porvis is joining us on the show. Haley, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. We've been running through the show. We're twenty-one episodes in, so we've done something right. Yeah, um, you've done something right. I've done a lot right. You're doing good. <laughs> a lot is a strong word, but we'll take it. Um <laughs> let's hop into a show that can be a bit of a lot, that being The Witcher far as synopses go, we won't spend too much time on it. It's season two. If you're listening to this, you probably, you know, had enough experience with it. Uh, we follow Geralt of Rivia, played by Henry Cavill, of course, Superman himself. We also have, uh, Yennefer, played by, uh, Anya Chalotra and, uh, Siri, played by Frey Allen. The show kind of revolves around the three characters in various different plot lines around season one. Season two, we all condense into one timeline. Uh, we follow Geralt and Siri as they kind of Wander the countryside, discovering a lot of the origins of Witchers and Ciri's various uh, abilities that have manifested as far as Season 1. We also follow Yennefer, who is, at this point has oh. lost her magic, who has kind of trying to find her place in the world and see what Geralt and Ciri can bring to that. All while a massive war is breaking out. There's discrimination among the elven community. There's dwarves in there. It's pie fantasy and dark and gritty, and there's a lot of things to get into. Noah, I want to get over to you first, because you have been the one uh, cheerleading this for me for a while. What did you think uh, going into season two and how did season two either live up to or disappoint those expectations
0: going into the Witcher season two? I felt that all of season one was about getting pieces together. Season one felt like a scattered puzzle, both in um, alternating timelines separation of who our protagonist was going to be. We spent as much time with Geralt as we did with Yennefer as she was um, in her early days of becoming the, the, you know, super powered um, mage that she is and so as far as season one goes at the very end we have siri and geralt their fates intertwine and they finally meet for the first time and they are um, it's like foretold that their their lives will be like intertwined for the rest of time and so having them two together at the start of season two and understanding what their relationship was going to be like what was their banter going to be like back and forth that's what i was hoping um to get out of this series i really wanted to see how Geralt could be if we have like this huge like you know hunking mass of a of a soldier um (laughs) how can he be sort of like a mentor to this princess who only knows or who's only been brought up like in a royal setting so that was one of the pieces that i hope um you know, came through on this season two, and then also Yennefer. We don't really know Yennefer's fate at the end of season one. She unleashes what's called chaos magic and burns and you know, war party as they attack Nilfgaard I know. Yep, I know. A I mean, in it's it. the locations. Okay, <laughs> hey, that can be part of the conversation too, because that's what happens as well in season two. This story. Where where I was expecting a, you know, episodic, more so like focused uh, direction for this series, uh, especially in season two when we were waiting for so many pieces to come together. They finally connected the pieces, and then they introduced more. You know, we're, we're starting to dive into the Elven community and um the disc- discrimination against them, their new leader. Um, We're introducing new mages. We're introduced, or I'm sorry, we're continuing to understand the politics of how mages operate in the Witcher universe. Um, We're following Fringula and uh, her continued independence as kind of like, um, you know, she's a force of her own, and she's not moving with our protagonist's party. Sometimes she's often moving against it, so... I think that the incorporation of new puzzle pieces made season two feel dense. Um, But I think we'll dive into that. You know, those were some of my early expectations over to you, Haley.
2: So coming out of season one and into season two, I really just wanted to kind of, like you said, like with Yennefer, we didn't really know where she was going to be, honestly, coming into season two. So I think it was really cool to see um, how Yennefer came in and like, she didn't have magic and like it was just crazy and I also really wanted to see that relationship between Siri and Gerald develop you know like you said like we didn't know what their banter was going to be we didn't know how their relationship was going to be and so coming into season two I really really wanted to see you know their relationship develop because they were obviously drawn together in season one um and coming into season two they finally like had come together. And so I was really excited to see, you know, what was going to happen, how it was going to be, if they were going to hate each other or like not. And if, you know, Geralt was going to be a good mentor or not. So it was very, I was very excited coming into season two, um, wanting to learn more about that.
0: Brandon out of season one, going into season two, what were your expectations?
1: Like you guys, I wanted it to be more cohesive, and I know that there's been kind of a controversy of, like, the, the book fans of, like, oh, oh, this isn't, you know, as intrinsically tied to the uh, the novels as the originals were, or even to the video games, and I respect that. Like, of course, I want to see mythology recognized for its full potential and, like, what the author's intent was. At the same time, I really enjoy season two a lot more than season one. Uh, like, I like the puzzle that you mentioned between the different timelines of season one, obviously the, diff- the very different character arcs between the three that we get, Um, although frankly, I think Siri is way more interesting in season two than she is in season one. I found her kind of like wandering, you know, innocent child in season one. And now she kind of grows into the figure that her grandmother wanted her to be all the way back in season one with help of, uh, uh, with help of Geralt and, uh, and Yennefer. But at the same time, I also just like it overall. It's dense. It throws ideas against the wall, seemingly at a million miles a minute, uh, between, again, all the different factions, all the different, uh, societies in here. But at the same time, I also appreciate it more and I had more fun with the various witcherisms that it was trying to go for beyond just the obvious style that carries on from season one.
0: Well, the big things for me, uh, you know, diving more into the details of what season two accomplishes is um there's a lot of what I what I was uh what I quickly fell in love with in season one with the show. Um the big three for me are uh the magic. You know, we have wizards, we have mages, and they are strong. They're kind of regarded as like these. the the super beings that they should be in the witcher universe um we have monsters being a horror fan being a gore fan like this is a series that is not scared to shed blood and Geralt, being the badass that he is chops these monsters up and it's so sad because we actually do lose somebody so dear and i'm remembering it now uh i won't dive into spoilers though so you're gonna have to watch season two for yourself to get that heartbreak um and then the third one is going to be romantic plot lines of course when Jennifer and Geralt are introduced, they're both like powerhouses. So they kind of initially clashed, but then they realized like they're they're actually uh, they have great chemistry together. And so there's a romantic there's a romanticness that ensues. Um, and I remember in season one when they were capturing like a dragon egg, how awesome it was to see them both fight. I wanted that to continue in season two. And it's unfortunate because it takes quite a while um, for their their storylines to to cross over. Um, where I was expecting, like, at the start of the season, you know, there is a question mark over Yennefer's fate. But us being fans of the series, we're like, of course is going to come back. Like, they didn't use her to her fullest potential and then just throw, and then, like, you know, roll up that towel and throw it away. Uh, we were waiting for her to come back. But that was quickly forgotten about because of how, how well Geralt actually was a mentor to a developing Witcher in Ciri. Um, they returned to kind of like the Witcher's training base in the, um, in the middle of season two. And that is where um, we're introduced to some of uh, Geralt's community, some of his, like, um, I guess you could say like lifelong friends, um, his trainer for sure. And, um, I think seeing Siri uh, this this different side of her, this independent side of her, this soldier in her, uh, was great to see. I was rooting for her. She, like Brandon says, she was one of the more interesting characters to follow this season. Had we really just stuck there and watched Siri's training and her development without getting too confused with like what's going on in in Nilfgaard, it, it started to become just so big that I was losing focus on you know those individual threads. Um, that being said, uh, Geralt and Siri, definitely a combo that I needed on screen. Uh, this series doesn't make the mistake of just taking what worked in season one and just, you know, rinse and repeating it in season two. We have all new monsters and we have some lore behind those monsters. There is actually like this ghost-like figure um, that is one of Geralt's friends. Uh, you know, it's, it's the, the monster that Geralt is hunting actually matters to one of Geralt's friends. So you have this moral dilemma that Geralt sometimes navigates like, questioningly um but though it's those instances that i think the show really uh really sparks with people because there is no like there's no good and evil in this universe or or if there is there's like bad and then there's worse like there's no easy options in this world and that's what i love to see um there are raptor like creatures there's so much new monsters and creatures in here that i think just fans of high fantasy uh you know i don't know how closely it relates to the video game or the book so i'm you know i'm sorry to the fans of those but the netflix series is, is so worth watching um and exploring because of the inventiveness of some of this um what were some of those monsters or elements outside the characters that you really found yourself attached to it could even be locations
2: so i don't know the name of it the one with the like the tree like thing. I don't know. It was just very interesting to see how, like, this monster, like, it attached itself to, to people. And, like, it just was very, it was like a, a disease, I guess. It was just very hard to get rid of. I also really liked, I don't know the name of it again, but the one, the ghost like feature one that can kind of shape shift where, you know, we see that mortal dilemma between Geralt and his friend, the one his friend was very attached to. That one you also grew a very good attachment to just because. She was kind of genuine, like she was kind of like manipulating at least Siri, at least in the part of the, I don't know, I think episode that it was, but she was very like manipulative, but like, you grew to love her like she wanted to live she wanted to be there and like she didn't want to hurt people but like that's just like her nature so like that character I grew really to, just because you could kind of see like the heart of the monster. Um, so that was probably my favorite one. <laughs>
0: And you make you make an excellent point there. Yeah. There are like emotional sides to these monsters. They're not just something to slay, uh, which I think is Geralt's mistake is sometimes he just sees things as that. Uh, but the creature that you mentioned, it's called a Leshen. That's like the root like tree creature. Um, and what makes them so scary is they're they're parasitic. So it's like if they attack someone, um, in in an instance where we're at the witcher's kind of home base, uh, one of one of the, you know, the witchers there are attacked and they're slowly transforming into the Leshens, And it's it's devastating because, uh, it plays with the whole, um, you know, they're human, but they're not. Um, and, and they're, they're a, fam- Oh, that's what it is. It's the unfamiliar aspect where, where the witcher, um, has to attack somebody that he recognizes as one of his former allies, um, but has to slay them because they are now an enemy.
1: I believe you're talking about the uh, Bruja from the first episode, right?
0: That is we're talking on, I don't remember her name, but it Ghost was lady, the like, right? it wasn't in the first episode though i think it was like in the second because it's when he was playing he was playing with his friend who's like trans transformed and he's immortal so (laughs) that's that's the first episode oh i didn't know know. that was the first episode
1: (laughs) i bring that up because i remember watching the first episode and thinking this ties so great into season one because the first episode of season one is that one where he fights like the weird like spider creature or whatever it was and as a result of that fight you get not only set up for season one you get set up into Geralt as a character and I like how this sort of parallels it into season two, but with the added caveat that, like, oh yeah, the world's gone to hell basically because of you know the Guardian war and everything. And like, there's more stakes now, obviously. But now we get the Siri influencer as well. So I like how that all tied all tied into it. I love the stuff with the um, with the Witcher Fortress. Uh, and apparently, there's a, a prequel film that goes more into that that I'm dying to watch. Apparently, um, but I would really I would really like to see more of that. I love uh, Kim Bonia as uh, Vesemir, who's kind of like the weird fatherly figure in there. Uh, And I love the kind of like banter that we get back and forth, like the sort of training montages are cliche, but I think this does this well in a way that benefits, again, Siri and Geralt's characters. Like that stood out to me. As far as monsters go, you you know this, Noah, I am a wimp. So almost all of this was nightmare feel to me. Um, But I did like the creativity behind it. I like sort of the gothic influence behind a lot of it. And I think there's more, I think they took more of the chains off of the designs for season two than they did season one.
0: What season one does uh, very well is when we're moving with Geralt, um, we are so often we're on the roach's back. Roach is, of course, who he calls his horse, and we are traveling with Geralt as he's picking up these assignments. And we have, uh, you know, a new setting almost every episode. Were you as satisfied with the lo- with the settings and locations of season two?
2: I definitely agree. I think it was super, super early on. Like we didn't really get that, you know, diversity of location like right off the bat, which I mean, it was a cool location and there was kind of a lot, like it played a really significant role, but I think like it would have been nice to like kind of explore more of the, you know, surrounding area. And then like halfway through the season, maybe like using that as like a base. Um, And like, I mean, it jumped around a little bit after we got there, but there was a lot of time that was spent there. And I feel like it also kind of ruptured the possibility of, you know, new monsters and stuff like that just because we were at the same location um so I wish it kind of was later but I mean it was a cool location and it did play a significant role but I wish it was definitely later in this
1: season you think in a show where like portals are like a main thing and like people keep oh go go portal this like you would think there would be more locations and yet they kind of write in the show just like no we don't want to do that
0: right and it and after discussing this it makes me go oh well that's probably why we're Not why, but it makes sense that we're paying such heavy attention to the Yennefer and uh, the high mages of society because they're the ones who are doing traveling around. Like that's the setting where we can see um, different areas where they're performing uh, executions, where they end up in the forest by the elves. And so I see maybe that's a good way of looking at it is if season one is all about hopping around with Geralt. Season two is hanging out in one spot with Geralt as he's developing a young Witcher and seeing Yennefer as she's kind of being the more of the uh, she's the, you know, the nomad on her feet, the person who's moving uh, place to place because uh, her role in this season is kind of like it's, it's convoluted, right? Like she's still acting as her own agent. What did you, what did you get from Yennefer this season, Haley? You know, before I just start rambling.
2: She definitely you know, developed and I think it's cool kind of going back, jumping back to the locations real quick. Like in season one, we see Unifer kind of in the same place, like at the training school. Um, And then we see Geralt traveling a lot and it kind of switches in season two, which I think is really, really cool. Um, And Having her kind of go to these different places really allows her to develop and allows her to kind of be her own person and really decide what she wants to do and how she wants to go about doing it Um, and just following her throughout the entire season like she grows a lot as a person and she kind of learns like what matters most to her um, because she has to make some tough decisions.
1: I think there's something to be said about, you know, no, not getting the spoilers yet, but I think there's something to be said about her journey towards the end and how far she does come. Because I think, I don't know about you two, but when I came into her character in the uh, in the initial episodes and we see her in the situation that she's in, I kind of had the vibe of like, okay, this is going to be the of kind of going through cycles, kind of like going through her own training, that kind of thing. And by the end of it, she very much has grown into, I wouldn't say selfless yet, but a very more complicated version of who she was at the start. And it matters like for as long and as convoluted the series is, it does a good job of giving especially Yennefer that sense of, you know, that sense of weight to her character, that sense of hopelessness to her character. So that when we see that moment towards the end, it works.
0: Briefly wanted to cover because you two, you know, you spoke on Jennifer beautifully. So thank you for that. Um, I briefly wanted to cover Fringula now that we're talking mages um i wanted to talk about fringula's independence because in season one i think she kind of pops up as being like yennefer's opposite or almost like her her competition as a mage and then in season or in the season finale she is acting with the opposing party that um yennefer like annihilates at the end of season one so now fringula's role in season two is really assisting the elven party as they are uh transitioning into power or at least seeking that power uh i think that fringula has a very has a shining moment in this season where you just see how, how the edges that she's willing to um to push her magic to uh in order to achieve her goal and i i like i like those moments from her i think that she is the character we need to be rooting for almost like a uh you know, we haven't made the comparison yet, but almost like a Cersei from Game of Thrones, you know, we need somebody who can do the bad when we need them to because they're so good at it. And I think that that's, that's who she is for me. Um, but how did you two uh, approach her character in this season? Or how did you, you know, what's your perspective around that?
2: Kind of like you were saying too, like we need someone to do the bad and she does it so good. Like she's very, she's very determined person and she's like very... I can't think of the word, but she's just very determined and she wants to get what she wants and she will kind of do whatever she needs to get it. But also like she's willing to work with other parties to do it. Um, And I just think it's really cool to have her as kind of like a dynamic in the series because, you know, we need someone who's like willing to kind of do whatever it takes, essentially. Um, And it was cool to see her, you know, develop this entire season. And she's definitely different from season one to season two. I'm excited to see kind of what she does in season three.
1: There's a very interesting place that, uh, that Friedel is let in, you know, the end of season two. And I thought there was also something to be said about her, Yennefer and, uh, Francesca, the, uh, Elven Queen, like their kind of trinity dynamic with the hut and everything that, again, we won't go into, but like, I like the idea of like the varying degrees of power and desire that that setup and that setting provides. And I think Frangella, like, it would be so easy for her to be like, you know, the dark reflection of, uh, of Yennefer. But there's more layers to that. And I should also say, I was not expecting Kahira to be an interesting character, the Black Knight, who she, you know, teams up with through the way, which, again, Game of Thrones comparison is there. But towards the end of the season, I kept thinking, like, these two are fascinating. I didn't like this character at all.
0: That's how I felt around, uh, Francesca, you know, your last comment there were yeah. like, this show is really doing a great job of making me involved with their life. And it's making me go like, Ooh, like, I wonder what their future, uh, is, is looking like for season three, but that makes me kind of scared. Okay. Because the way that season two ends, um, it's like, I am worried that the show is going to, is going to stick with this, um, style of different parties that we have to keep up with and keep tabs on episode to episode I think some of the final episodes are so great because we get um, a new duo. You know, we do have, uh, it's not that big of a spoiler, so I apologize, but it's going to be a Yennefer and Ciri coupling, which I think is great to see. I do want to see, you know, how different characters interact with the new transformed Ciri. The, my my hope is that season two was their like expansion of the story, just to like show more of what's going on in the world around them. Now, can we funnel that down? Because it continues because it didn't introduce the threat because the, the threat of, What's haunting Siri was kind of early on, but it can, it adds more layers and more depth to what that threat looks like. And I, I want us to focus on that. I don't want that to be like the looming winter is coming. I'm sorry for all the Game of Thrones references. I don't want that to be the looming threat in the corner that we just, that we just have to, Hey, look out because that's coming. Oh, by the way, let's do another plot line. Oh, Hey, look out. That's coming. It's a plot device. I want to kind of open the floor, though, because we do have a guest on our pod. And I'd like to ask Kaylee if there was um, more comments or even a question you had for us to host um, just surrounding The Witcher.
2: I did want to take a moment to kind of go back to Francesca real quick um, and kind of talk about her. Like at the beginning, she was so hopeful. And then at the end, she was like almost evil and scary. And that was just, absolutely
0: I... evil. I... Oh, she does something so bad. It's, it makes you go. Oh, my God. You're the monster in my closet. Okay. I'm sorry, Haley. I just, I had to mention So I just
2: want to know kind of like, what do you guys think is going to happen with her as she is going through this new, like, scary anger um, self?
1: The thing that I really admired about the whole Francesca-Philavandra arc is that we watched Arcane and like that show is all about you know, negative deeds piling up until eventually there's this fever pitch bombing, you know, sort of speak. There is such this level of uh, this kind of fervent display of, you know, uh, unobtrusiveness to it. But I'm very curious how they're going to make this for season three, because the whole point of it is that, you know, they're noble people. They have history, they have values. So what happens when all of those go out the window and they're inevitably fighting for the side that they had hoped to never be a part of? I was going to pose this before we get into our out of 10 rating. Uh, One character besides our main trio who you want to see more of in season three, uh, Paley or Noah, whichever one of you wants to talk first.
2: Okay. So I really want to see more of Death's Gear. I love him so much. He was one of my favorite characters in season one. Coming back in season two, it was cool to see, you know, a little bit more dynamic in him. And um, I just, he has a lot of potential. I'm very, very excited to see hopefully more of him in season three because I love him so much.
1: (laughs) And we didn't talk about Jessica, but he comes back in a very unexpected way that I was really pleasantly surprised by. Um, Noah, character besides the main trinity you want to see more of?
0: Actually, we didn't talk about her all that much um, on this uh, conversation. The character who i would love to see um in an altered role would be uh Tissaia, and that is the uh, the mage the very powerful mage who trained yennefer frangilla um in their school in season one and kind of is um is partnering up in season two with a fellow mage to dominate uh nilfgaard or you know this this universe that we're in and um as important as that is to her plotline, I kind of want to see her like shake things up a bit. Like she is the one um, I think on the political spectrum when it comes to the mages where I can see her seeing the better in people, or I can see her shifting um focus, shifting goals, uh, the actions she can take and really be an, in, like, be the, be the surprising force that shakes up what everybody's trying to do. Like I can see her almost as like the sleeper agent that I want to come out. Um, It gets like, distracting from all the monsters the magic and like i said the romance that i love in the witcher and uh, i want that back so if she can kind of rupture things up on the political spectrum please be my guest
1: very quickly uh i want to see more of estred, uh the sorcerer historian who befriends yennefer they have a thing then they don't and then we have the episode with uh, him and Geralt. uh i don't know how the monoliths work they never that's one of my problems with season two is that they never really explain the whole concept of monoliths in the other world which i hope to get more of season three but i think estred is the key to that i love characters who you know, I, I know Exposition, you know, gets a bad rep, but I love characters who can make that con- contextualize in like a historical place in the world. And I want to see what Estrella can do, much less if there's like a possible love triangle between uh, him, Geralt, and Yennefer, because I know that that has not been buried yet. And I want to see more of that.
0: Uh, <laughs> yes, we love romance.
1: Okay. Um, to, uh, really quickly, uh, out of 10 for you, uh, for all three, for me, it's solid eight. I think it's a significant improvement over the first season. I had more fun with it. I think it carries on more and I can't wait to see what there's in three.
0: And I'm going to give this one uh, just to just a tick down below that. I'm going to go ahead and give it a seven. I did find myself enjoying season one more because the altered uh, storylines, altered plot lines, uh, timelines even all made better sense to me with my uh, perspective with how things were culminating at the finale here. I think it's a bit more of a hopscotch, you know, going around everywhere. Um, but I like the inclusions and I still think that there's more to the story to be told and they're doing it so well. So, you know, whatever kind of produce producing team is behind The Witcher uh, over at Netflix, you know, I'm, I'm appreciating the work and I will be a fan uh i'm gonna watch that as soon as the new trailer drops as soon as a new season comes
2: i'm gonna go ahead and give it an eight i really really liked it i did like it more than season one just because it made more sense to me like because season one i got confused with like all the different plot like it's just kind of confusing so like it kind of comes together more in season two and i just really like the character development that we see and i'm just i'm super excited for season three so i'm giving you a solid eight super good i loved it so much
1: and that'll do it for episode 21 of plot devices thank you guys so much for tuning in While we've got you here, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, at Plot Devices. That's Spotify and Apple Podcasts, at Plot Devices. And our RSS feed as well. If you can uh, find it online, that's there as well. Check it out there. Give us a like. Give us a review so we know how we're doing. Uh, We haven't gotten any reviews yet, but I hope we get some in the future. Uh, You can also follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at Plot Devices. You'll get new updates when episodes come out. I want to thank our guest, Haley Forbus, for joining us. Haley, uh, where can people find you online, and what do you got going on in your life?
2: So you can find me online at Haley Forbus, any platform, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Haley Forbus. If you want to give the happy broadcast underscore Arizona a follow, I'm working with the happy broadcast, which is an organization that produces anxiety free news. And I just do positive news here in Arizona. And I kind of share stories about that. And I share quotes weekly. So THB underscore broadcast or Arizona, I guess. I'll give it a follow if you want some positive news here in Arizona, but thank you so much for having me guys. This has been such a pleasure.
1: And, of course, I want to thank my co-host as usual, Noah Guzman. Noah, thank you so much for coming on with us again. Where can the people find you online and what you got going on in your life?
0: Find me online at Twitter, at Noah's Plotting. Lately, we've been uh, getting spoiled. Super Bowl just happened. We have a bunch of trailers dropping, so i got to figure out which ones are going to be um... – My tickets to the theaters, you know, you got Jordan Peele's Nope. You have uh, a new TV spot for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. So cannot wait to discuss those things. Uh, You might catch us discussing and dissecting those trailers um, in the next episode, but I don't have any reviews coming out. So thank you.
1: Although, as far as reviews go from you, Cyrano, next show, which are going to be finally discussed, because it's hopefully going to be coming to wide release, finally, maybe. Um, you guys can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram, at the Movie King 45 That's Twitter and Instagram, at the Movie King 45 Go follow my work on ASU Odyssey. I just did a review up there for Jackass Forever. I also have a 10th anniversary piece of Red Tails that should be out by now, and my breakdown of the Oscar nominations that I thought the biggest surprises, snubs, and uh, satisfactions from those nominations and once again, follow us, our show, at Plot Devices on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and our RSS feed you can find in new episodes every other week. Once again, for myself, for Haley Forbes, from Noah Guzman, this has been Plot Devices episode 21. We're old enough to drink, and we'll see you next time.